All right, thank you so much, Noah. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my huge thanks to the Boston Bar Association for again, uh, hosting one of our Discharge Upgrade Pro Bono programs. It has been many years now that we've partnered on this um, and it's been really great even as we transitioned into this webinar format that lets even more of you participate. Um, today, we are going to be discussing the really um, critical topic of how to advocate for veterans at discharge review board hearings. Um, we have an incredible panel of people who have all had the opportunity um, just over the past uh, year or so to participate in such hearings and they'll share their perspective and tips for practice. Uh, before that, um, let me share the screen. All right. So before that, um, we will go through um, a few updates about discharge upgrade law and practice. Um, for those of you who uh, just need to keep up on what is going on, there have been, as always, a few things uh, changing every year in terms of um, new procedures, new memos, and things to know about. Um, I'll also just make sure that we are all on the same page about the basic standards and practices at the discharge review boards uh, so that we are all speaking the same language. And then I'm really thrilled to um, welcome our other three, our three panelists, Amelia Pennington, Alex Martin, and Olivia Cole, uh, who will be sharing their experiences advocating for veterans at DRB hearings. Um, my name, I suppose I should say to start, is Dana Montalto. Um, besides being the co-chair of the BBA's Veterans and Service Members Law Forum, I am also a clinical instructor at the Veterans Legal Clinic at the Legal Services Center of Harvard Law School, um, which uh, has a, for a number of years, sponsored the Veterans Justice Pro Bono Partnership, which helps co connect veterans who are seeking um, discharge upgrade because they unjustly received less than honorable discharges to pro bono attorneys who are looking for ways to give back to the veteran community. And I'm so thrilled that two of our panelists today, Amelia and Alex, are members of that panel. Um, and we'll be talking about their experiences actually representing veterans um, who we refer to them. Um, so why don't, uh, feel free to put any questions in the Q&A as they come up. Um, I will either try to um, answer them or field them out to our panelists. Um, I may pause a minute uh, in answering it if I know that we're going to get to that topic, so don't think that I'm ignoring anyone. And if we don't have a chance to answer them during the program, I will um, try to follow up with everyone afterwards. All right, so with that, I will get underway and do more formal introductions of our panelists uh, shortly. But let's just do a little bit of the updates. So one topic that many of you may have been following for the past few years are the class action lawsuits against the discharge review board. There was one focused on the Army Discharge Review Board um, uh, led by Steve Kennedy, one against the Naval Discharge Review Board that affected Navy and Marine Corps veterans. And there's a recent um, uh, case against the Air Force Discharge Review Board that was filed just last September. So the important things to know are, these are the class action lawsuits focused on veterans from the post 9-11 era who served, um, uh, who received less than honorable discharges and they say that they had either 
post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, they experienced military sexual trauma, or had some other behavioral health condition that they experienced in service that they think is connected to the reason for which they were discharged. The, um, there are individual class definitions for each, but that's the basic structure of, um, for each of them. Uh, the important things to know is that last April, 2021, um, the, a federal court actually approved the class action settlement in the army focused uh, litigation. Um, and so what we have seen since that settlement, um, and there was uh, information that was provided at last year's training and resources and materials, and we've included some of that information in the resources for this year's training as well. Um, but what we have seen is that the, the board actually has started to implement some of the um, parts of the class action settlement that they were mandated to do or that they agreed to do, including the automatic reconsideration of certain um, uh, veterans who had applied to the Army Discharge Review Board in the past few years and not been granted the full relief that they were seeking. So I think many of you on this call may have represented a veteran um, who served in the Army who may be a class member um, and may have seen that the Army last year sent out a number of notices telling veterans about their right to automatic reconsideration. Certain other veterans may have gotten notices of their right to reapply um, if they had a, a denial that was further in the past. Um, so there are many things that are happening with that, but we're still not sure exactly whether there are changes in the upgrade rate, how successful people are, be, are um, how quickly they are moving through those re-adjudications. So hopefully we will learn more soon and then be able to report back. More recently, in February of this year, the same federal court actually also approved a similar settlement with the Naval Discharge Review Board, and they similarly agreed to a number of procedural changes and training, new training at the board focused on mental health and trauma. Um, they very recently sent out the re-adjudication letters to veterans who had been previously denied a discharge upgrade. Um, and so I think those went out in mid-March. So many veterans actually may be coming forward and trying to seek assistance now because they're in this window of having the opportunity to submit new information and evidence in support of their upgrade application. Um, so again, we will see sort of how that plays out, but we're sort of in that very early stages of that settlement. Lastly, there is this um, very new class action um, against the Air Force Discharge Review Board. Not much yet to say about that other than that um, uh, it may be on a similar track as the Army and the Marine Corps uh, and the Navy. So more updates to come. Next, I wanted to share a quick update that can affect all veterans, but particularly is a big change for transgender veterans who may have transitioned after their discharge from military service. So one power that the records corrections boards in the military have is to actually grant name changes so that someone can change the name on their DD-214 discharge paperwork. Um, it used to be a somewhat more, um, more onerous process where you needed to have a full board vote about whether or not to grant this change or not. Um, but there have been some recent memoranda which are included in the materials for today's program 
that make the process seemingly much easier and hopefully faster, um, where there's a presumption that if a veteran has obtained a um, legal name change from a local court, they can then submit that to the review boards. And rather than having to get a full vote of the board, it's more of an administrative process where there's a presumption that it will be approved. Um, so this seems like a, a good change. Um, I've included again the memoranda in your materials in case you're helping a veteran where that may be something that they would be interested in. The last thing I wanted to touch on in terms of updates is new resources. Um, so last year I talked about how there was a forthcoming um, discharge upgrade legal practice manual um, that I and others um, at our clinic and at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center had been working on for a number of years. Um, it was actually just published last year. I have a nice copy here. Hopefully many of you have a copy on your desk as well. Um, hopefully it will just be a great resource for people to use who are seeking to get into this work or advance their practice. Um, frankly, it is has been a difficult area to practice in where you have to learn a lot of things by word of mouth or by webinars like this. Um, we'll of course still do programs like this, but um, it's nice to also have an easy place to find answers to simple questions um, or practice tips. So hopefully that is something um, that you can get access to if you are advocating for a veteran in a discharge upgrade. Um, also, I included in the materials um, a new self-help guide that our clinic uh, created about accessing VA healthcare. Um, so many of you know um, there are ways for veterans who have less than honorable discharges to access full or at least limited VA healthcare, regardless of receiving a discharge upgrade or not. Um, that can be really critical, especially for many of the veterans we serve who have mental health conditions related to their service where it really isn't possible or, or reasonable to ask them to wait a year, two years to get an answer on a discharge upgrade just to access those really basic mental health counseling services that they desperately need. Um, so this is a, a guide, it's really pitched towards veterans, but hopefully is you know, readable and useful to you all as well um, about what actually are the standards for accessing VA healthcare, especially mental healthcare, and with some pointers about what happens if you aren't approved? What are your rights to appeal or to seek some sort of redress and, and get access to what um, benefits you might be eligible for? So I've included that in your, in your materials and of course, I'm here to answer any questions. All right. And the last thing, um, we'll now move on to our second topic um, from the updates to just make sure we are all on the same page about the basic standards for the discharge review boards. So there are four discharge review boards, one in the Army, one for the Navy and Marine Corps, one for the Air Force, and one for the Coast Guard. And although there's one in each branch, there's a, um, the regulations are the same that essentially that apply to all of them. And they have very similar characters and jurisdiction. And so we think about them as a group, although it is important to understand that there's a little bit of a different culture within each branch, and that is also reflected in the way that the review boards themselves operate. But the jurisdiction is the same. So veterans who are discharged within the last 15 years can apply to the discharge review boards to upgrade their discharge. 
with the exception of anyone who was discharged by general court martial, um, they have to go to the records corrections boards. The DRBs focus only on discharge reviews. They don't do other, they don't do name changes. They don't do um, awarding medals that someone didn't get, um, crediting time and service, the things that the boards for correction of military records can do. Um, they are focused on discharge upgrades and the four things they can change are someone's character of service, narrative reason, separation code, and the entry code. They will do so um, under the following legal standards. Either they find an impropriety, so there's some legal error, something like there was a regulation that was violated, a law that was violated, um, or a provision of the constitution potentially even. Second, they either find that there is an inequity, some unfairness, um, that can include um, a lot of the mental health related advocacy where someone says it wasn't necessarily illegal to punish someone for misconduct, but it was unfair to not take into account the mitigating and extenuating circumstances under the Wilkie, under the Curta Memoranda and the Wilkie Memorandum. There are lots of other ways of inequity, including favorable changes to separation regulations, um, overly harsh punishment, um, and so forth. The last basis for upgrade is clemency. Um, that applies specifically to veterans who received a discharge by special court-martial, so a bad conduct discharge by special court-martial. But it's, it largely functions like an equitable basis for upgrade. So they're looking at very similar reasoning as inequity. Um, the Wilkie Memorandum from 2018, um, which I'm happy to share with anyone we've included in prior years or materials and is available online, talks more about what inequity and clemency are. It can include factors like good post-service conduct. Um, and that was a huge focus of our discharge upgrade pro bono program from last spring. So if you're interested in learning more, I would recommend that training. The legal standard at the boards is preponderance of the evidence. So you need to prove um, you know, more than a 50% um, uh, um, standard for getting an upgrade. But one thing to remember, and we'll talk about this with the staffing of the boards, is that the board members, for the most part, are not lawyers. They're not necessarily looking at preponderance of the evidence in the way that we spend our day thinking about preponderance of the evidence. And you know, is it just a you know, 51%? Um, so uh, the fact is, is that functionally, the veteran should bring forth as much evidence as possible to support an upgrade. Um, and it can often feel like it is quite a high hurdle, higher than perhaps preponderance of the evidence would suggest in other legal contexts. Um, in part, that's because the boards um, apply a pretty strict presumption of regularity. So they start from thinking, the discharge was correct and it's on, the burden is on the veteran to prove that that discharge was improper or inequitable. Um, and that can have a, again, a bit of a weight to it. I've listed some key statutes and regulations. Um, and again, there are memoranda um, that apply to this practice area on specific substance. Staffing, I've mentioned these are mostly not lawyers. They're generally officers, although they might be senior enlisted members. Um, in a case where mental health is an issue, the one of the members should be a someone with a mental health focus, um, psychologist, psychiatrist, 
um, or so forth. Um, it used to be that the statute specified you had to have five board members. Um, that was recently changed in a provision of the National Defense Authorization Act so that there's only three members required. Um, I think there's some idea that maybe by reducing the required number of board members, it might make the decisions come out a little bit faster, um, but we're actually still seeing variations in terms of whether there are three or five board members assigned to cases. Um, lastly, on the procedures, I just noted the particular provision of the CFR that touches on procedures. The key thing to know is there really are no formal rules of evidence. So any sort of testimony, documents, and so forth, um, photographs, pictures can be submitted as evidence um, without the, you know, going through some sort of required certifications um, or so forth that you would have to do in formal court proceedings. Um, basically, the board will look at anything that you send to them. Um, but also can get very overwhelmed by if you send them too much paper. So the question about evidence is really strategic about how much to send them to prove your case while also thinking about what it's like to be adjudicating so many cases at once. So what are the most key things that you need to send them? Um, and lastly, there is a right to reconsideration. So the board generally, when you first apply, it will, um, uh, do a records review first. That it's, that's its preference, that it sort of looks at things on the papers. That's generally less burdensome from them, for them than holding a hearing and having um, everything that goes along with, hear, with hearings. Um, although there are sometimes reasons to ask for a hearing first, especially if you are very close to someone's 15-year deadline, because that is a hard deadline that cannot be extended. So if you're a veteran who representing a veteran who has been discharged 12, 13, 14 years ago, it may be worth just going ahead and asking for the hearing rather than doing records review first. But generally the boards prefer to do records review first and that then preserves that there is this right to get a second bite at the apple, get a de novo re-review based on certain factors, including if someone was previously pro se and now has counsel um, or if someone previously only got a records review and is now seeking a personal appearance here. There are other grounds that are listed, but those are the two big ones. Um, and I thought it was a nice transition to talking about hearings themselves. Um, quickly, um, before we move on, I just wanted to um, answer a couple of the Q&As. Um, one question is that if the army regulations have been updated, do those new regulations apply to an earlier discharge upgrade or do the earlier versions apply? So it's a somewhat complex answer. Um, the answer is the actual, um, uh, you know, the, the regulations that were in place at the time of the person's discharge are the ones that applied to that discharge. But you may be able to look at the more recent regulations and compare them against one another and say, oh, there actually was some additional rights that are provided to service members. So for example, um, one common reason that we see is that veterans who were discharged for personality disorder when they actually um, uh, had post-traumatic stress disorder or some other mental health condition, um, Congress, that was a big problem, especially in, especially in certain eras like um, 
the mid 2000s, um, Congress then passed certain laws and the military put in place certain regulations that provided greater procedural protections for a service member is discharged for personality disorder. And so some, a veteran could go back to the board now and say, one of the reasons I should get a different narrative reason or an upgrade is um, there are these new more favorable regulations and that's an equitable basis for upgrade. So to answer that question. Um, resources about the BCMRs. I think a lot of the practice tips are um, about practicing before any of the boards are generally applicable, um, including much of what we'll talk today about hearings. There's certain things about just how to advocate for a veteran, how to develop a case theory that generally apply to all discharge upgrades. But we also have trainings from the past seven years that I think are great, as well as our military discharge upgrade manual um, covers lots of uh, topics. So there are some places to start. Um, as for the statute of limitations period, the 15 years, it is not waivable. Um, the boards will not waive it. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are out of luck after the 15 years has passed or if the veteran has exhausted their remedies at the DRBs. The Boards for Correction of Military Records is another board that exists within each of the service branches. They also can hear discharge upgrades as well as a variety other, of other types of petitions related to correction of military records. And although they technically have a three-year statute of limitations period, it is waivable in the interest of justice. And we regularly see the boards waive it nowadays. They used to be very strict about saying three years from the discovery of the error or injustice, but now regularly um, they'll just go straight to the merits and waive the, the time limitation. So fortunately, it is essentially never too late to apply for a discharge upgrade. Um, all right, well, with that, why don't we, um, I know there'll be more questions that pop up, but I really wanna make sure um, we have time for a very robust conversation. So I am excited to bring um, uh, into the fold our three panelists. Um, I will briefly introduce them, although it will be very brief um, because they have done many wonderful things and hopefully you can also just learn about that through the program. Um, Olivia Cole is the Deputy Legal Director at Swords to Plowshares. Um, Swords to Plowshares is an incredible um, organization out in San Francisco um, that provides a range of social services to homeless and at-risk veterans. Um, and uh, Olivia specifically um, represents veterans and focuses on trauma-informed representation of uh, military sexual trauma survivors. Alex Martin is an associate at Proskauer Rose. Um, she does very fancy things related to private equity um, that I cannot fully explain, but you can read about it in her bio. And she also um, spent some of her time when she was not uh, focused on um, that uh, representing a veteran before the Army Discharge Review Board recently. Um, and lastly, Amelia Pennington, she's an associate at Morgan Lewis Abacius. Um, she focuses on complex intellectual property disputes. Um, and again, when she is not focusing on that exciting work, she um, helped represent a military sexual trauma survivor before the Air Force Discharge Review Board. 
Um, so you can read uh, their full bios in the materials for today. Um, and with that, let me turn it over to talking to our panelists. So um, we're going to sort of walk through step-by-step step, um, what the process is. Um, so I'd love to hear from maybe each of you just um, a little bit about what you did before the hearing about pre preparing. Um, maybe first we can talk a little bit about um, did you submit any written briefing to the boards um, to sort of queue up your case and um, what sort of um, additional evidence did you provide to them? Um, Amelia, maybe I'll start with you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and for all the work that you do. It's really wonderful that we are all able to help these veterans who have given so much to us. So I represented a discharged airman in front of the Air Force Discharge Review Board, and he had been discharged under general, um, and we were seeking an upgrade to honorable. He suffered some serious military sexual trauma during his time, and our basis for seeking the upgrade was that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder when he committed the conduct that led to his discharge. In preparation, there was a lot of discussion with the client in going through the years of trauma and kind of understanding the facts and going through his medical records and his military records. One of the things I wanted to highlight that I learned pretty quickly is you really have to take yourself out of the position of being an advocate and put yourself in the position of your client, especially when you're asking them to go through this really traumatic event. So little things like thinking about the room that you're in. You know, my client felt most comfortable when he wasn't, his back wasn't to the door. So we used a room that was four sides glass so he could see out and then we positioned ourselves a certain way. Um, taking breaks when having discussions as you're asking them to go through. Um, a mental health expert suggested having um, something of a specific smell in the room, like a lavender or something that could be kind of calming and centering. So thinking through those little pieces ahead of time to try to make your client as comfortable as possible is really helpful when you're asking them to kind of relive some, some traumatic information. And then once you have gone through that with them, really doing the best you can not to re-traumatize them when you're asking them for clarification or when you're working through the record. So what we did is we had a few meetings with our client and then I went back and I you know, constructed a chronology, worked on the brief, started going through the facts and only really brought him back in to, to confirm things and kind of spoke more generally as we'd gone through that so that I wasn't asking him to relive his trauma every time. So just really thinking through your client and their needs, I think is a really important first step. And so what we did is we then, we prepared a brief, uh, we submitted evidence, which was um, chiefly a report from an expert witness psychologist who assessed him. And she was a really great resource. Her name is Dr. Dixon. Uh, Sandra Dixon, she, she did a great job for us. Um, and so, yeah, writing the brief, submitting that evidence, submitting um, his medical records, and then we prepared to give our presentation. So I think that's a kind of a good start of what we did to prep and happy to discuss more once you've heard from the other panelists and if you have any questions. How about you, Alex? What did you do to prepare? And especially how did you think about preparing your client? Sure, yeah. Um, so my case was has been quite a journey. I've actually had it since 2017, um, just had the hearing a couple of months ago. So 
um, it actually took a really long time to sort of get the full story from the client. And um, I represented a client who was in the army, um, identified as a lesbian at the time that um, they were in the army, have since come out as a trans man, um, but endured a lot of bullying and sort of anti-LGBTQ sentiments, um, experienced a, a very cruel military sexual trauma. Um, and it took him about 15 years to be able to tell the story. I was actually the first person um, who sort of heard the story out loud, which was extremely humbling. Um, and it sort of made me realize you have to be very conscious about, um, to Amelia's point, making sure that the client is comfortable, um, you know, telling the story because every time they say it out loud, it, it's sort of reliving that experience. And obviously it's very painful. Um, so we, we definitely tried to be very conscious about ensuring that it, if the story had to be told that it was for a very specific reason and that, um, you know, we gave the client a lot of time to sort of mentally prepare for that experience and sort of help, um, help talk them through it. Um, I also found that sort of doing things in writing um, was really helpful. So if, you know, it was sort of difficult to verbalize something, if we could maybe jot it down um, or sort of write down, you know, sort of how I'm interpreting something and have the clients confirm that that sort of is consistent with what their experience was. Um, so obviously it sort of depends on, on the client. Um, but we had a lot of um, fact-finding meetings. And I think part of Part of that was because a lot of time had passed. Um, so we were sort of actually bumping up against the statute of limitations. Um, so it just took a lot of time to sort of rehash all of those details and um, the, you know, the files, if you've, if you've gotten them from the military are just massive and sort of, it's a lot to digest. So it took a lot of time to kind of get the facts on paper. Um, we actually submitted the discharge upgrade application first um, because we were sort of a couple of weeks away from the statute of limitations and then took a couple more weeks to finish up the brief um, and submitted that separately. So I actually also worked with Dr. Dixon, who is fantastic, such a rock star. Um, highly recommend working with her if you get the chance. Um, but she had also prepared a report for my client, which we did submit with the initial um, discharge upgrade application. And I think that was a huge value add. Um, and one thing I will say, if you do submit materials sort of piecemeal, um, if you get a hearing, I would make sure to confirm with them that they actually have everything that you've submitted. Cause I realized a couple of weeks before the hearing that they actually didn't have the brief in the file. So um, would definitely recommend double checking with them that they have everything that you submitted. Um, so hopefully that's helpful, but I'm also happy to answer any other questions. Yeah, there's a great point about um, uh, confirming ahead of time. We're getting a little bit into the logistics side of things, but confirming that the board has everything that you sent. Um, I wouldn't say that I have a, a, um, had great experiences, smooth experiences every time with their filing system either. Um, but hopefully we can talk a little bit in a minute about confirming how you sort of thought about confirming ahead of time. One thing I would note is that part of um, some of the class action settlements was that the boards are going to move towards an electronic filing system and that might provide some greater resiliency or assurances that actually they have received what you what you sent into them. Um, I don't think I've seen that totally rolled out yet, but that might be coming in the next few years and resolve some of these issues. Um, Olivia, can I invite you to um, talk about 
how you thought about preparing your client and um, uh, especially any best practices as someone who does a lot of this um, uh, work with trauma survivors um, in having to go through these legal processes that help that force them to re to confront some of the trauma that they may have experienced, which isn't every case, but is many cases that we work with. Yes, absolutely. So um, just for a bit of background, I was in a somewhat different situation um, than Amelia and Alexandria uh, because the client that I worked with had been represented by a different attorney at Swords to Plowshares um, several years prior to the hearing, which actually happened just last Monday. Uh, so it was very fresh in my mind. Um, and so the, the client had been represented by another attorney who had done the briefing and the evidence development and had submitted that original application um, many years ago. And then um, while waiting for a decision, we lost contact with the client and then the client resurfaced um, essentially once the hearing was being scheduled. Uh, and so the case was assigned to me two weeks before the hearing was to take place. Um, so I did not do any additional briefing or evidence development. Fortunately, all of that, um, all of the relevant documents um, were in the record from the, the prior attorney's brief. And I really was focused on preparing the client for the hearing and also familiarizing myself with the case um, because it was, was a relatively new case uh, to me. This case was, um, actually one very similar to the example that Dana was providing earlier um, with personality disorder discharges. So the client um, had enlisted at 17. She was sexually assaulted relatively early in her service um, and started to develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. She reported the assault. Um, there was an investigation. She was in fact diagnosed with PTSD during her service. Um, and then about four months after the assault, uh, she was discharged for a personality disorder uh, with a, a general discharge um, rather than a fully honorable discharge. And this was in 2005, during that period of time that Dana mentioned, where uh, the Department of Defense was discharging a lot of service members with personality disorder um, diagnoses when they, in fact, you know, had some other mental health condition um, that was likely the, the reason for the misconduct or the reason for the discharge. I mean, that was certainly the case with my client. So she had, because she had submitted a report during her service, there were very detailed statements from her written at the time about the details of the assault. And so one of the primary things that I did while working with her to prepare for the hearing was I didn't require her to tell me all of those details that I had already read in her record. Um, you know, she was about to two weeks later have to speak about this um, in front of the discharge review board. And so I wanted to limit the amount of times in that short period that we had to prepare that she was going to have to go through um, talking through those details. I also um, made sure to provide my client with as much information prior to the hearing as possible so that there shouldn't be anything um, unexpected, at least coming from me, right? Like we can't predict what the board, I mean, we can have some sense, but we can't predict with certainty how the panel members are going to react to the client, what questions they're going to ask. And so there is going to be some level of 
uncertainty and a lack of control that your client has in the hearing. Um, and often what can be the most triggering for a trauma survivor is that feeling of a lack of control. And so what I want to make sure I'm doing as the advocate is empowering my client as much as I possibly can in this um, progress and this ex or process and experience um, and roadmapping for them what they can expect so that I am limiting the situations in which they're going to feel like something has blindsided them or they're, they're lacking control. And so um, some examples of how I might how I might do that for a client and how I did for this client um, is that I gave the client, like the client had the list of all the questions that I would be asking um, well in advance of the hearing. And then we went over them together twice, once for me to just explain to her why I was asking the question and what type of information I wanted to, you know, elicit what was relevant that I was trying to have her convey for the panel through asking that question so that um, there was never any misunderstanding on her part, particularly because she and I had not really worked together before and we didn't have a lot of time to build rapport. I wanted to make sure she knew where I was coming from with all the questions that I was asking. Um, and then another time to practice going through the questions um, so that she could you know, respond to them um, and I could give any feedback. Um, but one key caveat here is that I didn't have her answer the one question that I asked, which is when she would describe the trauma. So I just let her know, this is the question I'll be asking. Um, it is the only question, she knew that was the only question I'd be asking. So that in the hearing, she would have the choice of how much detail to give um, in that moment. Um, and she knew that even if she decided the day of the hearing to, um, you know, be more vague in her answer, not go into every detail of what happened, she knew that I wouldn't come back with probing questions requiring more detail from her. Um, so she, she had that understanding and she had total control um, in how to respond to that. And then in the hearing, you know, I I followed that. Um, I didn't go off script. Um, I made sure there wasn't going to be any surprises for me, both in terms of the questions that I had for her and also in terms of the legal arguments that I was making and the evidence I would be referring to. So she also had the copy of the script that I would be using when I talked through the legal arguments. Um, so nothing she would hear in the hearing from me would be like out of left field. Um, and I think that goes a long way in helping the client uh, feel as relaxed as they possibly can going into this. Of course, there's going to be some um, level of nerves and, and everything that is unavoidable. Um, but helping the client like feel that they are on a team with me um, and that their desires and, and preferences are what are driving this uh, representation. Um, and it, I find that it's helpful to be as explicit um, as possible about that with your client so that they know um, they're in the driver's seat. Because if you're not explicit about that and setting the client up in that position, um, there can be the sort of default assumption that like you're the lawyer and you have the expertise. And so they should just go along with what, you know, what you're saying. And so um, that's something I tried to do with this client, particularly um, because we didn't have a long representation for, for she and I to have built rapport and, and that understanding. Um, there were no experts or witnesses that we could call at this point. You know, we didn't have, I mean, ideally I would have liked to do more briefing and development because 
her original denial happened prior to the publication of the Curta memo. So there were, you know, new legal arguments that could be made um, in a brief, but the time just wasn't there to do that. Um, so, you know, we focused on prepping the client for, for her testimony. And then also, um, I, of course, focused myself on uh, familiarizing myself with everything in the case and making sure that I was making all those legal arguments, um, both ones from the prior brief that were still relevant um, and also raising the, the new arguments that we had because of the changes in the, in the procedures for the boards that had happened since she was previously denied. Well, those are such um, valuable points, Olivia, especially to sort of the principle of how, um, especially with trauma survivors, but really with all veterans who are having this stressful experience, how to talk to them about what will this actually look like? Um, what will happen? Who will be there? Um, how to empower them to feel like they have control in this scenario um, that can often feel very disempowering um, or um, opaque, um, as well as um, raising some good practice tips, um, like thinking about when it is that's worth submitting a brief. So if a case hasn't been briefed before ever, that might be a good opportunity, but also even if um, the board will consider evidence all the way up and through the hearing as well as additional briefing so it is possible that there are new memos that come out new evidence that's developed you know, um, uh, something else happens that you could bring those to the hearing um, as well one other thing that i have actually did in the hearing was a client really didn't want to have to testify about that particular point of the sexual assault he experienced um, and so we worked ahead of time to prepare an affidavit that um, where I pulled on information he had shared at various points and information that he had shared in medical records and with service providers at other points. So he didn't have to actually even tell me everything. Um, I wrote that down in an affidavit and I just halfway through the testimony where he was talking, I then submitted that and said, we're not going to talk about this. Like you want, if you want to read it, like this is his sworn testimony we're gonna move until after this point and talk about what happened afterwards. And the board actually went along with that perfectly fine. Um, so there are, I think just, there is a positive side to these, um, to the low evidentiary standards and the um, flexibility of a non-legal audience to thinking about how do you use this forum to, to best advocate for your opponent. Yeah, that's very similar to what happened in our hearing, the client prior to the hearing had suggested that she thought she would go into a lot of detail about what had happened and that she'd be comfortable doing that. And then when I asked the question in the hearing, um, her response was essentially uh, the assault happened. And I followed that up by just saying to the to the panel members, that's the only question that I'll be asking. That's all the testimony that my client will be giving. For more information, or if you need more detail about the uh, assault that occurred, you can look to the records here, here, and here. Um, so it's sort of similar approach. While we're on this point, we actually, our client was uncomfortable testifying. And so we had gone kind of back and forth on the value of having him testify versus the, the trauma that it was going to cause to him. And so what we settled on is that he would attend the hearing, he would be there, but he wouldn't testify unless they asked him specific questions. And we really used Dr. Dixon as the expert witness. And I walked through her report with her in addition to my opening statement of covering all of the trauma so that he didn't have to um, speak on it. So I went in, you know, kind of full lawyer mode thinking, yes, of course he's going to testify. And then Dana actually brought up the point that, you know, really you should check with him and see 
how comfortable he is, explain it to him and let him make the choice. And so that was really important. It's also important to think about when you're having these hearings, you know, setting up with your client what their day is going to look like. Do they have to go back to work? Are there kids in the room? Should, you know, suggesting headphones so other people don't have to hear it, you know, making them feel, you know, reminding them of the ways that they might want to protect their privacy, even within their own space, because they're going to be really stressed out and they may not be thinking those things through. I also arranged to have Dr. Dixon call him after the hearing to check in on him to make sure that he had that support available right after and just kind of following up with him, you know, a week or two later, reminding him of his resources um, and just checking in can go a long way. Very important things to think about what is what is their support system and what might it look like afterwards. Um, I think we'll we'll hopefully get back to that topic, which is um, very important. But I, you also raise this other question of your hearings were all virtual because they because they happened in the last uh, year and a half when the boards have moved to virtual, whether that's video or teleconference hearing. In the past that often was not even an option to do anything remotely. And the only way to have an in-person hearing was to go physically to DC with your client, having had to pay their own way to get there um, and appear in person before the boards. And um, it's there's a often a, a value to having that um, in-person interaction. Um, but I wanted to invite three of you to all talk about, since you all appeared before three different boards, sort of what was it like going to the um, virtual hearing itself, um, what does the logistics of that look like? Um, maybe Alex, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so my, I was in front of the Army Discharge Review Board. Um, as I had mentioned, we were sort of up against the, the statute of limitations. And if, uh, if, you've, if your hearing is sort of after the statute of limitations has expired, um, you really can only do a hearing. If you do a records review, you don't get a chance to do a hearing after that if there's if the outcome is not favorable. Um, so we got an invitation probably, I don't know, maybe 15 months after I'd submitted the um, original application saying, hey, we've received your application. We'd like to, they actually invited us to do either a records review or a hearing, um, but we ended up going the hearing route for the, the reasons I just mentioned. Um, and it was actually a little bit interesting. They at first said, you know, if, with the hearing, we'll get you a date in late summer, early fall um, of 2022. And then a week later, we got an invitation for a hearing in like three weeks. So um, that was a little puzzling, but um, it worked out fine. Um, so on the day of, it was on a Monday, um, there was an all hand sort of briefing call at 8am for everyone who had a hearing that day to call in. Um, you know, there's a roll call, they sort of went through some of the basic timeline and logistics. Um, and one thing I would mention about that, which um, was not apparent to me beforehand was that if you plan on bringing any experts or other witnesses, you should also have them dial into that call. Um, I did not do that. And they told me on the phone, like, well, where's your, where's your witness? And I, but someone had told me by email, they didn't need to dial in. So there was a lot of confusion on that. Um, I would err on the side of having everyone participate in that briefing call if you can. Um, and then my hearing was at 9am, like pretty shortly thereafter. So they, they sort of call you and then, um, conference us in. That's sort of how it worked for me. Um, they actually tried to call my client and 
something happened. I don't know. He couldn't answer the phone or something, but uh, we all made it in eventually. Um, and so that was, that was sort of my experience, but they um, really weren't all that responsive in the weeks leading up. And I actually had to follow up several times just to confirm we were actually having a hearing that we were scheduled. Um, I don't think they really monitor those mailboxes where you send the forms to confirm you wanna have the hearing. Um, so I followed up with the one um, actual human that I'd been able to get any engagement from um, and she was able to confirm that we were scheduled. But it definitely took some um, pulling of teeth to make sure that we actually were scheduled and um, were in the book. So, but it ended up going off without a hitch um, despite some of the, the logistical challenges leading up. How about you, Olivia? What was your experience recently? Yeah, so I, um, I did have quite a bit of like back and forth with um, the Naval Discharge Review Board um, prior to the hearing, mostly related to scheduling, but some related to substance. Um, I, similarly to Alexandria, I received, like the first contact we received um, was actually contact like to the client about scheduling the hearing. There was a phone number that was left. So I called back um, to like, attempt to get the, the hearing pushed back a bit so I'd have more time to prepare. And um, the first person I spoke to was a very helpful in doing that um, and following pushing it back I got another call um, from a different uh, person at the NDRB a major who actually ended up being on the panel um, to go through the like logistics of the day of um, so kind of same as what Alexandria described like talking about um, how we would dial in um, that sort of information and walking through sort of on their end, what would happen? The client would be sworn in, there'd be like a sort of introductory spiel. Um, and then they would ask the client a couple of questions. They'd turn it over to us. We do, you know, our opening and, and the direct um, examination of the client, like walking through what the hearing would look like from their perspective. Um, and then, I was also asked on that call to like clarify or confirm our contentions, like what the substantive issues were that we would be raising in the hearing. And so at that point, I let you know this person know, well, all the contentions that were raised in the um, brief, you know, we're still arguing. And then also I have these additional contentions related to the um, Curta memo that had been published subsequent to the prior decision. And at that point, the, this major that I was speaking with realized that there had not been a physician put on the board and should, there should have been. Um, and so we ended up having to reschedule again like a few times um, to get the physician actually um, available to be on the panel. And so I was in touch with this particular major many times um, via email. He, he also at one point texted me um, asking about scheduling concerns and he was very very responsive that may be you know kind of just person independent he he also was the person who should have identified that a physician needed to be on the board and so it was sort of his mistake that it, they hadn't been and i think because of that he was also you know really motivated to to correct the issue and get things resolved and be responsive for that reason um so i did have a lot of 
a lot of contact and then they provided a Teams link and a dial-in um, the Friday before the hearing, which was on a Monday. My client and I both dialed in separately. She was in Nevada, I was in North Carolina. So uh, we were about as virtual as you could be. Um, but she and I zoomed one another on mute so that during the direct, she could see my face and I could see hers. Um, and so we wouldn't speak over one another. Um, and I, you know, I had not done uh, one of these virtual hearings before, but I think that worked well. And um, afterwards, that was something that the client mentioned she had appreciated. So just a, a thought for those of you who are going to be doing these. Having done a, a few virtual hearings, especially at VA, I will add it's, it can be very strange to enter um, if you're doing an actual video hearing to enter separately from your client and then suddenly and and leave and not have that togetherness aspect. So I really like that idea of um, having a separate Zoom so you can see someone's face. Um, Amelia, how was working with the Air Force? You know, there were a little few um, physical hiccups. Yeah, so similar to Alexandria, we submitted our request. So our client had submitted a re review of the record um, on his own before we took over as his representation. And it was a very brief statement and he was denied his upgrade. And so this was our kind of second bite at the apple where we were appearing in person, you know, virtually, and then also um, submitting a new brief and new evidence. And so we submit his request for this hearing. We get confirmation that it's been received and that we'll hear from them. We don't hear, we don't hear, I'm bugging them, I'm bugging them. And then all of a sudden we get, you know, here's your date, it's in like three weeks. It was incredibly fast. And so we had to put together a finalized brief because we didn't want to submit the brief too far ahead of time. So we wanted to make sure we we're submitting the brief. We, our goal was about 30 days before the hearing, turned out to be about three weeks before the hearing because that's when we received um, our information. But we wanted to make sure that the brief was fresh in their mind close to the point of when we were going to have the hearing. And so we submitted the brief and then we started to prep for the hearing. We did not receive any communication until like a day or two before the hearing no confirmation. I reached out a bunch, no confirmation. And then I heard from a clerk who was basically going to kind of run the hearing two or three days beforehand to set up a time the day before to do a dry run. Um, we did the virtual hearing through a third-party platform that wasn't very popular. I'd never heard of it before. Um, so it took a little bit for me to download it onto my computer and then figure it out. So I was really grateful for the dry run and definitely go through, if you have the opportunity to do that, go through the programming because it'll, it wasn't something like a Teams or it's kind of intuitive. You had to download a program, you'd open it, you'd make sure it all worked, you'd kind of go in. So walking through it with my client and with the expert ahead of time was really key so that we didn't have any hiccups the day of. And so I met with that clerk the day before the hearing and unlike Olivia, he didn't have any kind of substantive questions. We weren't asked. Um, to confirm or deny anything. Rather, it was more him giving me kind of the update on what the hearing would look like and just, you know, asking any questions I had and, you know, trying to be really clear and to put us, put us at ease. One thing that was really apparent for the Air Force Discharge Review Board was this is your time. So the kind of structure was we logged on, we swore in, they gave kind of a little update from the panel and then it was, here's your 30 to 40 minutes, Amelia. So you can take kind of any time, you can, you can structure that time however you want, however it's gonna be most effective. So what we chose to do is I had an opening, we then walked through the testimony of Dr. Dixon, 
um, we turned it over to the panel for their questions. I did a short closing and then that was kind of it. But you can kind of do whatever form is going to work best for your client and for that representation. So they made very clear, it's your time, leave it all in the field. Everything we need to know, you know, really hone it in in that, in that 30 minutes. Um, but do it however you like, we're just gonna listen for that time until they ask questions at the end. Um, the clerk was really helpful in, you know, kind of answering any question my client had ahead of time so that he knew the structure. I found letting him know what it was going to look like ahead of time and, you know, giving him the information of the platform we were going to log into was really helpful in quelling some anxieties he had. Um, so that was really key. But just kind of my takeaway was that it's, you know, it's up to you to structure it and that they, the Air Force at least made very clear that they, they want to give you the yes. So let you put yourself in the best position for them to give you the yes really get down to the salient points walk them through how they can say yes to you um in the most concise way possible for for that time that you have um we've sort of made the transition so i think we should just go there we're just talking about the hearing itself um and i think amelia you your um experience with the air force is similar to what i've seen also at the Navy and um, Army, and I, I invite uh, Olivia and Alex to chime in on this as well, which is, this is a non-adversarial process. Um, the burden is on the veteran to prove, and so the boards give a fair amount of latitude to present testimony and evidence and to present the case in whatever way they think is best. Um, there isn't going to be someone on the other side, um, some um, opposing counsel who is going to argue against it. Um, so essentially, you know, the person that you're arguing against is the person on the other shoulder of each of the board members who's saying, ah, but you could say no to this. Um, and so just keeping that in mind of, of how to present the strongest case. Um, so and then another, sorry to yeah. you off, but another key point to think about there is because it's not adversarial, you are saying that this, this military board made a mistake, right? So you're, you're saying there was a problem with this branch of the military with your client. So you have to be pretty careful not to embarrass them, but also make the point that there was some injustice going on. So it really is a, a tightrope of, you know, if you come in guns blazing and you're saying, this is so messed up and this is so problematic, it's hard for them to swallow. So you really have to walk a tightrope of explaining the injustice and inequities and making clear that they can do the right thing now and how better it is now and, and the, the progress we've made as opposed to kind of dwelling on on the problems of the past, because it is kind of their, their they have an allegiance obviously to that branch. So something to kind of think about and, and mooting can really help with that in that balance. Yeah, it can be um, uh, definitely an interesting question about how to put together a case theory and keep in mind who, who your audience is um, while also being true to what your client's experience was. And many of, many clients are, you know, um, understand that maybe there were mistakes, but also many clients can be rightfully very upset about what happened um, and have carried that with them. Um, uh, so there are a lot of strategic choices. Um, Alex and Olivia, did either of you, um, did you similarly um, feel like you sort of had the floor to present your case and how did you choose to use your time? You know, Alex, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, so yes, it, it was relatively unstructured. Um, 
I did not have the chance to do a MOOC before. I, I sort of wish I did. Um, I think that would have been helpful. Um, but it was pretty free form. So I did just a brief opening statement. Um, as I mentioned, I'd also worked with Dr. Dixon and it was actually her suggestion that um, I ask her questions first to really set the stage um, in terms of the sort of medical foundation um, to really legitimize the report and the, and the PTSD diagnosis. And um, I think that was supremely helpful. Um, we sort of opened the floor to let uh, the panel ask her questions after she was done and they actually had no questions for her, um, which I think is a testament to just how solid she was. Um, my client, I gave him the option to testify um, in particular about the sexual assault. Um, and he had made the decision that it was sort of an essential part of his healing process and he wanted to do it. Um, so after Dr. Dixon spoke, I then asked um, some questions of my client and it was just kind of basic, like setting the scene, um, you know, how did you end up in the military? Tell me how you got to, to where you were. And um, he did end up telling the story in, in some detail um, of the sexual assault, which was um, really, really difficult for him and, and very painful. And he sort of had to stop a few times to collect his thoughts. But at the end of the day, I actually feel like it was the most impactful part of the testimony. Um, and afterwards, you know, we again opened it up for questions and each board member sort of went down the line, said their name and said, thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you for your service. I have no questions. And it was just, it was such a powerful moment. And I think, um, you know, having the client testify, I, I fully realize it's not always possible, but um, having them tell their story, if that's an option, is really such a meaningful and valuable part of that whole experience. Um, and I think in my case in particular, I don't have a decision yet, but I, I walked away feeling very positive about it. Um, and after that, I, I did sort of a, just a brief closing statement. Um, and so it was done in about 45 minutes. It didn't really take all that long. Um, I think it helped that there was no questions. That part went very quickly, obviously. Um, yeah, that was that was sort of the structure. They didn't give me any instructions of you know how it should or has to go. Um, so it's sort of up to you to kind of fill that space however you see fit. Similar experience in that there was no um, imposed structure to the hearing aside from the sort of introductory remarks and the swearing in of, of the client and everyone introducing themselves for the record. Um, it was then turned over to me. I gave a brief opening statement. Um, my client testified um, in detail about her service, not about the trauma, but about like her pre-service life, her early service, um, and then her medical treatment and everything that happened after the assault. Um, sort of getting at whether she would have this long-standing personality disorder. So try, we we're trying to address that and also addressing the um, misconduct, which I'm putting in air quotes because it was like a couple of counselings that were used to justify her um, less than fully honorable discharge. So we focused on that in her testimony and the context surrounding that. And then after her um, testimony, and I was in fact told this in the sort of logistics call with um, the major that I spoke with, um, the, we were asked, is your client willing to answer questions from the board? So we had the option to say yes or no to that. And I knew that they would be asking that question, that we'd have that option. Um, and my client wanted to answer any questions that they had. And so I was a three-person panel. Um, the major who was the recorder 
um, and the person who I had been interacting with asked some questions um, primarily related to the timeline of events um, and also thanked the client um, for her service and, and expressed to her that he wouldn't be asking um, anything about the trauma. Um, and then the physician on the board also asked um, a handful of questions, uh, just digging in on details of the medical treatment and the personality disorder diagnosis she had received. Um, and the third panel member, a Lieutenant Colonel, um, asked no questions. Um, and then I gave it a very lengthy closing, which is when I walked through, like ha after having set you know, out the facts of the case, walked through the arguments, legal arguments related to personality disorder discharges. And so highlighting the things um, that we've mentioned earlier in, the, in this, um, you know, how the regulations had changed and there were more protections um, procedurally for clients in this situation or service members in this situation, talking about the CURTA memo and how um, that applied to the facts of this client's case. During that, the entire closing and all my legal arguments um, you know, there were no questions for me and there were no questions after about the legal arguments. I thought perhaps there, there might be, um, but there were not. So after um, I concluded that section, um, essentially the hearing was over. They thanked the client for her time. They asked her a few standard questions that we knew they were going to ask. Um, like, did she feel that she received a um, adequate hearing and adequate representation? Um, and then the record uh, was closed at that point. Um, and that was one week ago. So we have not received a decision at this point. Um, but based on the questions that the client was asked by the two panel members who did ask questions, um, I left feeling cautiously optimistic. Um, and also, you know, I had heard anecdotally from other advocates that sometimes when board members ask questions, of uh, the veteran, it can seem adversarial. Um, they may ask probing or insensitive questions. Um, and, and even I, I've known some advocates who particularly in years prior have had these hearings um, where panel members come across even maybe a little bit hostile um, or as, as if they're reprimanding the client. And so um, I went into the hearing thinking, you know, you don't know what to expect, but but that that could be a possibility. Um, and my experience was was not that, as I described. Like both um, the panel members who did ask questions um, were very respectful of the client and didn't ask. They respected also her wish not to speak further about the trauma, um, which of of course is great and and helped the client. I think come out of that experience feeling, um, you know, as as much as she could that she wasn't like re-traumatized by having ha having had gone through that. So, yeah. Well, I will chime in here. Um, having had some of those hearings in the four years um, to say, I've, I definitely have had some hearings where the questions did seem quite pointed, including especially from the psychiatrist or mental health specialist who was on the board where, which is interesting because I think that when Congress mandated that there be a mental health specialist on the board, they thought, oh, this might be someone who has greater understanding of mental health and perhaps will provide a, a, a valuable perspective, but they often um, have asked the harshest questions where they had really poured through someone's medical records and picked out some ways my perspective, cherry picked certain aspects of, well, but didn't you say once 
that you had been bullied in high school and maybe you always had a mental health condition before you even got into the military. Um, so I think while it's always great to have the experience and hopefully this is maybe part of a, a sea change of um, how to appropriately address trauma survivors and just show respect to a veteran appearing before a board like this. Um, I think it is best practice to prepare a veteran that they might get some harsh questions. They may not actually, they may seem more hostile than they actually are. We still won upgrades in a case that I can think of where we um, got some very difficult questions. So it may not mean that it's the end of your case, but it can be a difficult experience and thinking about how to prepare for that is important, um, as well as to think about what are the questions that you might get or that might be directed at your client that you can answer instead. Um, so, um, you know, factual questions maybe go, go best to the veteran, but the boards aren't very used to lawyers showing up with clients. And so sometimes you can sort of take some of that sting away, point them to places in the record, um, answer their questions, um, and not put our client in the position of doing so. We'll also add that I, um, in one experience where we did have Dr. Dixon testify at a hearing. She was very useful in um, She testified first and answered and took some of those more difficult questions and addressed them. Um, and I think they might have otherwise asked our client, and he then didn't have to answer those questions because she had already addressed their concerns. Um, when um, it sounds like most of you didn't get a lot of questions, but were the questions that you did get from the board members, were they more factual or were any of them sort of digging in on the law? Did you have opportunities? I guess the more general question is, how did the board really engage with your case? Did it seem like they were, um, had really dug into the record and were quite familiar with it? Um, did they have some back and forth on, you know, what does the Curta memo really mean or anything like that? Or were they more hands off? just say the physician based on the questions that he asked it was clear he had reviewed the client's medical records closely um but all the questions from both the physician and the major on the board were factual um in nature as i think i might have said before there were like absolutely no questions during or after um the legal arguments sort of section of the hearing um which I had been told to expect by some others who had had this experience, um, but I, I will take it to mean that I just did a great job ex explaining everything um, and hope, hope that that is the case. I'm sure that's it. I don't really have a lot to offer here because I had essentially no questions whatsoever. Um, the only speaking that anyone did was to just introduce themselves and then say they had no questions. Um, so I'm probably not that helpful on this topic, um, but maybe Amelia will be. Nope, I'm in the same boat. Uh, there was only one question and it was the psychologist asked if he was getting help. Um, and that was it, no other questions. Which is so different, um, you know, you never know exactly what will happen going into a hearing, um, but it really seems like they, um, it's not uncommon that the board really give the floor. Um, it has always seemed to me like they are prepared, like they have read the record, but um, uh, they're not, haven't 
I've never been grilled in the way that you are perhaps standing up before a federal district court judge um, or, you know, in some sort of motion hearing um, or something like that. Uh, why don't we turn to talking about what happened after the hearing? I, um, you know, Alex and Olivia, you're both still waiting for decisions, so you don't know exactly what the timeline is. Um, but Amelia, how long did it take to get a decision? And how did you think about, um, and this is for all of you, how did you think about both debriefing with your client and then prepping them for what could be a few weeks to a few months of a wait to get a decision? It was actually a few months before we received confirmation of the decision. Um, we'd been, it had been a month or two before I'd heard anything. And so I started to follow up and it turned out that they had actually made a decision and either it, you know, it had gotten lost in the mail. Um, and so the date on the decision was actually, you know, about a month or so before we even received it. So it had been made and then we hadn't received notifications. So certainly follow up um, and try to get a hold of, like Alexandra said, try to get a hold of a human. Those general mailboxes are really hard. So if you have anybody that you have an actual email for or can get them to refer you to somebody, that's really key because that's how you're gonna make sure that you get what you need. So I did do quite a bit of follow-up to actually get our decision. So just making sure that you press. And then another thing that was helpful was after this was kind of all said and done, we gave our materials to our client because he then went to, you know, go to change some of his, you know, disability statuses and, and kind of any other work he had to do. We gave him our chronology in the brief so that he had that advocacy with him as he was kind of now entering this new phase in his life and to kind of adjust anything else he needed to adjust. So thinking about sharing your materials with your client and then pressing for a decision, um, I think are key. Alex and Olivia, did either of you debrief with your clients afterward? How, how have you kept in touch? Yeah, um, I did. I called the client after the hearing just to sort of talk about the experience and um, his reaction was the same as mine and that it, it was really positive, um, at least from the little interaction we had with the board members. Um, it's kind of a bizarre experience because you sort of feel like you're just speaking into a void on these phone calls and no one's really saying anything. Um, so it's sort of hard to gauge how they're feeling or how they're reacting to your arguments and, and the facts. And um, so we just sort of chatted about that. And, um, you know, I, they, I think it was at the end of the hearing, they told us we should expect to wait about 60 to 90 days, which um, Amelia reminds me, I should probably follow up since it's now at the 90 day mark um, with no decision, but um, there wasn't really, I mean, I've sort of kept in touch here and there with the client just to see if they've gotten any correspondence. Um, not yet, but we just had sort of a quick debrief phone call and, um, you know, he thanked me and I thanked him for sharing his story. And um, it was overall a really good conversation and there was a lot of relief there um, to sort of have it done. So um, not a whole lot to report other than, yeah, we did have a quick debrief after I've checked in a couple of times since then. Um, and still waiting with fingers crossed. I also, I had a, um, a brief debrief with my client, um, sort of keeping like with the theme of empowering 
her and giving her choices, I basically just let her know prior to the hearing that I would stay on the Zoom after the call ended um, for a little while. And so if she wanted to stay on the Zoom and, and debrief with me right after the hearing, she could. But also if she wanted to just like end the call and log off of the Zoom, then she could. And and we could always, you know, debrief at a later time. Um, understanding that like some clients are going to want to talk about what happened right after the hearing and want to get your, um, you know, get your take on it immediately. And some clients might be like, I am done with talking about this today. And I would prefer, you know, to like have a week where I'm not going to think about this at all. So um, I gave her that option in advance, let her know I'd be staying on the Zoom. Um, and then she stayed on and, and we had the chance to chat, um, like I said, briefly after. And it was nice for that to be via Zoom um, rather than just it would have otherwise just been over the phone. Um, and essentially, you know, the client wanted to, to know my perspective how, of how I thought things went. She gave me, you know, her perspective, essentially sort of just like expressing being glad that it was done um, and that they had been, you know, friendly and, um, and seemed to have heard her story um, and not, you know, had those hostile questions or anything along those lines. Um, we talked briefly about the fact that it could be a little while waiting for the decision. Um, and, you know, she was understanding of that. And, and we talked about essentially, you know, I would let her know if I hear anything, but also for her to let me know if she does, because something we've experienced quite a lot sorts of plowshares is that the client will get a copy of the decision, but we as counsel do not. Um, so often the client is, you know, getting the decision before we do. Um, so just letting her know to contact me if she hears anything um, and that, you know, I'd follow up with her periodically um, or if we haven't heard anything in a couple, in a month or two, um, that I would reach out to the board and, and see where things stood. Um, and that was sort of the extent of the, deep, the debrief about the hearing. Um, but I did let her know if that there was some other point she wanted to talk more in detail about what had happened, um, that I was available to do that. Well, let's turn to our last topic, um, which is just thinking about when to ask for a hearing and when not to. Um, you know, what do you, what did you all come away with as thinking about um, the value of going to a hearing? And also, what are the costs? I can maybe start. Um, I found it to be immensely beneficial. Um, again, with the caveat that I don't have a decision yet, but um, I, and I think I've mentioned this too, our backs were sort of against the wall in terms of the timing um, where we didn't really have the option to do a records review. Um, but I think the opportunity to just share the story out loud and sort of create that personal connection and really humanize the client to the board um, is just so impactful, um, at least in, you know, in my experience in that moment, I think, um, you know, everyone's sort of going around and, and saying, thank you so much for your service and for your story. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like, you're probably not going to get that kind of a reaction in a records review. So I found that to be incredibly beneficial. And, um, you know, even if I had the chance to do it over again with a records review, I think I'd probably encourage the client to do a hearing just because I, I think it really made a big difference in my case.
Go ahead, um, Olivia, why don't you go and then Amelia. Um, so I, in our case, um, I, again, or similar to Alexandria, found the hearing incredibly beneficial, um, primarily to provide um, the opportunity to, to add these additional arguments um, that hadn't been considered in the prior decision um, that, like I mentioned, was issued before um, the Curta memo had been published, and also to sort of bring back to the forefront um, for the board the the arguments that had been made in the prior decision um, or, or in the prior brief that really were not there was no response to them um, in the in the decision that had been issued in 2016. Um, I think in terms of when to ask for a hearing or or when not to that there's all the, the benefits of the hearing that Alexandria mentioned, like your client, it can be very cathartic um, to have the opportunity to be, to be heard. Um, but then there's a down, potential downsides as well. If they end up in a more hostile hearing, um, it can be really triggering um, or cause some like decompensation for the client. Um, and also there's the downside of the wait time. Um, you know, you're gonna, you're potentially waiting longer for a personal appearance hearing than you're waiting for a record review. Um, and so thinking about the case that I worked on specifically, we needed to, to have the personal appearance hearing to get another bite at the apple here um, and to bring these new arguments. If this case with these facts was one I was submitting today, um, I would probably go for the record review first because I like to have the additional bite at the apple as an option. Um, and also because this client had so much um, of the details of what had happened in her records that um, the testimony she was able to, to give, you know, it provided some additional context, but we could have done that in an affidavit um, or something along those lines and kept the kept from having to experience a potential delay of waiting for a hearing um, unless the client was really felt really strongly about wanting to have the hearing in which case of course like the client's um, preference is sort of always the the deciding factor here but those are just some things like I would weigh um, and in the situation we were in the personal appearance hearing was the clear you know option that made made sense here um, but like I said, if, if we were doing it, if I was doing it again for the first time for this client with a fresh statute of limitations, um, the way that we went about it is, is likely what I would have done. Like I would have done what the SWORDS attorney did four years ago. I would have submitted the, the document review and, and seen how that went. Yeah, we, we had to do the appearance because the client had already requested a records review and lost um, on his own as a pro se applicant. So, you know, we didn't really have a choice, but it was tricky because when you have the, the kind of loss on your record beforehand, in our situation, um, the board had actually said, yes, we, we acknowledge that he has PTSD and we still aren't granting the upgrade. So we kind of had a hill we had to get over and we wanted to make very clear to the board you know, we, we're now submitting an expert who has assessed him and here is all the information you didn't have before. Here are the facts that you didn't have before. Um, here's the very clear military sexual trauma that was only kind of alluded to before. Um, so really finding ways to 
show the board there was new information and that they needed to reconsider their decision. So it is a balancing act because it's great to have the second bite of the apple, but the downside of needing it is they, they've already made a decision and now you have to overcome it. So kind of having those, those balancing factors for you. Um, I think we, like Alexandra and Olivia have, have highlighted, it's very cathartic for the client. And it was really great to have the expert walk through the information that could have, you know, kind of stopped things before they got um, to a no for the board. So kind of cutting off any preemptive questions of why didn't you report? Why didn't this happen? Why did you wait so long? And having the opportunity to kind of put in front of their face an expert that says, these are the reasons, this is what happens to the brain. You know, it's perfectly normal and kind of really setting that scene for them before they have a chance to even think about that, why they would deny it, it is really key. I think it's such a um, great point, Amelia, about the fact that, you know, you're usually only in the scenario of requesting a hearing when you have had a record review before, um, which actually makes it more remarkable that there is such a high success rate at the hearings. And we do know that from the data that there's a pretty um, uh, substantial um, value to going to the hearing, even though they've mostly been denied before. Um, and you do have the benefit at that hearing of knowing where does the board think the weaknesses are? And you can focus your evidence development and your arguments on those parts that they did not find fully convincing. So there sometimes is a strategic reason to do that um, sort of two-step. Um, I also would add, we've um, twice represented veterans who had applied and been um, received less than full relief um, from the boards. And when we requested the hearing the next time around, um, uh, shortly before the hearing was supposed to happen, the board called us and said, actually, we've reviewed your materials. We don't, we don't think we need a hearing. We'd be willing to grant the upgrade. And so long, once we made sure we got that actually firmly as a promise, we weren't going to give up our right to a hearing unless they promised they were going to grant the upgrade. Um, uh, that was, um, and it was just something that has happened to us. Um, I would also just add one more consideration, which is besides the sort of, as you say, like, you know, sort of cathartic value or the, the, the value to the client of having that opportunity to tell their story and hear it heard, it also can be really empowering for clients to hear an advocate advocate for them. I, I have heard that from clients say that it was, they, it's really nice to have someone fight for them, believe them, and that this process can, although very difficult, sometimes to some clients feel therapeutic um, because they have someone who really is invested in them. And, and that is great too. Um, and I would not lose sight of in any of these scenarios, the value that each attorney is bringing to these cases and, and non-attorney advocates um, in just organizing the evidence and presenting the arguments in a coherent way that the board can understand. It can be, um, the boards are mostly dealing with pro se applicants. Um, and there's very little information that's accessible for them to learn about how to advocate for themselves at the boards. And so there is a real, um, in some ways, I think, keep in mind that what you're doing is making the board's job easier. Like Amelia said, you are finding the way for them to say yes. Um, and so just think, how can you, um, you know, put it in a box, gift wrap it, tie the bow on it, and, and make it as easy as possible for them to say yes. Um, we do have, a, um, but I would say like, it's not, it's not the right question. It's not right, the right answer to go to a hearing for every client. Some clients very much have expressed they don't feel comfortable they, in 
these settings, they don't feel comfortable in front of certain audiences. And um, I think that's a, a decision to be respected so long as they've been appropriately counseled about what the trade-offs is about that. Um, one question we do have in the Q&A is, you know, if you've lost contact with the client um, uh, between like sort of doing the records review and that gets denied and going to the hearing and they're not there to make a decision about the hearing, you know, I think it, if you think reasonably they might get back in touch, there may be a reason to ask for the hearing, hope that they, as Olivia suggested, like they might be able to come back into the fold, but um, you know, a 15 year deadline can both come up quickly, but also can be quite long. So I think being in mind, is it worth continuing to try to reach out to the client and giving them as much time as possible till you come up to that 15 year deadline um, to decide that they're ready for the hearing? Um, because it is, it, if you ask for a hearing, you can always decline it when it comes around and withdraw. So it's not a choice where if you've committed to it, you have to stick through it. But um, I do think it is, um, it, it, I usually very much try to respect the client's decision about whether to do the hearing or not, um, because that's mostly who the board wants to hear from, is, is they think of these as client hearings. Um, I'm gonna to try to tick through a few more of the Q and A's because I know we are running right up against 1.30 and we both um, have uh, taken up so much wonderful time from our panelists and others may have to jump off. Um, so let me answer a quick few Q and A's. Um, does the same board that performs the record review then handle the hearing? Sort of like the same board itself. So if you apply to the Army Discharge Review Board because you served in the Army, you'll have to apply again to the Army Discharge Review Board but likely just because of the passage of time, the board membership has changed. So there may be a couple of the same panel members if it's relatively close, but there is a rotating membership on the board where people serve you know, sort of a tour there for a period of time. Um, I think the one outlier might be the Naval Discharge Review Board where I think the president of the board, Robert Powers, serves on every board, or at least I have seen his name on every single board. <laughs> So I, I actually got some info about this because he was on my client's original board um, panel. And then when we were rescheduling, he was initially going to be on, but then because they had to shuffle things around to get a physician on the board, he was not. And what I was told is that he um, jumps in now to help out when there's a backlog, but that he's not like on every uh, panel. Good to know. Um, uh, another question is whether veterans with who um, uh, had a court-martial um, are eligible for an upgrade. Um, yes, always. It just depends on which board they go to, whether that's a special court-martial. Um, uh, they might be able to be eligible for the discharge review boards. Otherwise, all other court-martials can be addressed by the BCMRs. Um, and yeah, they absolutely might be eligible. We got actually an upgrade just about a year ago from the Board for Correction of Naval Records from um, specifically actually for my client who went to the, I, I, it was my first hearing for the Naval Discharge Review Board. Um, he had been denied before by himself. Uh, we were denied by the DRB after a hearing and then we applied to the BCNR and they granted him an upgrade from BCD, that conduct discharge, all the way to honorable. Um, so it's not only possible, but actually, depending on the board, might, you might really have a lot of success. And actually, um, at our last discharge upgrade training focused on good post-service conduct and the Wilkie Memorandum, 
two of our pro bono attorneys talked about a similar experience with the Air Force um, Board for Correction of Military Records and getting a discharge upgraded there. That was a court martial discharge. Um, how long should the process take? Um, Alex and Olivia, you're welcome to um, chime in on this as well, but I think it really can, I've seen it really vary. There are times when you come into a case and there's a ton of records and your client's really engaged and you can get that thing, you can get something filed in a matter of months. And then you're in this waiting game with the boards where they may take a year or two to um, hear the case, decide, get a decision out. I mean, that is the, the wait time is long, but I would also say like it can take longer, especially um, I think Alex, you'd mentioned the client may have been in and out of touch, dealing with other challenges in their life where sometimes for clients, it does just take longer than um, you hope or anticipate to go, get all the pieces together. Um, but that investment of time can be really valuable to putting the strongest foot forward. Um, and it's really, I think, worth the investment of time because this is such a life-changing event to have a discharge upgraded. Um, so Alex or Olivia, do you wanna jump in on that question as well? Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like Olivia and I are probably on opposite ends of the spectrum on this one. Um, I first met my client in 2017, so it's been a long road. Um, but to your point, Dana, there's been kind of a lot of fits and starts, um, sort of lost touch with the client at various times. Um, it took a long time to get the military records, um, like several months. Um, and then, it, you know, it's like 3000 pages. So then you're sort of having to dig through all of those materials and come up with sort of a coherent set of facts. Um, the records are very spotty. They're very hard to read. Um, there's a lot of horrible handwriting. So it just, it's a lot to go through. Um, and again, you're sort of, you know, you can be dealing with a client who's maybe not the most engaged on this particular issue. Um, so it, it just took a long time for me to kind of get into a position where we sort of had everything on paper. We're ready to submit. Um, the client's comfortable. We've had time to have the psychologist sort of work with him to figure out, um, you know, the diagnosis and, and prepare the report. So there's just a lot of moving pieces. Um, so it took, it took us a very long time to get to that point. Um, but it sounds like Olivia was able to do it in a, a relatively short amount of time, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I'll echo that. It, there's a huge variety. Um, I mean, this client, I, I had to prepare for the hearing very quickly because she resurfaced, but I was in a position where I had a, a former SWORDS attorney's brief that I could use as a jumping off point that that attorney had already reviewed the records. Um, once I did that again, but like obviously having that work already had been done by an attorney prior to me um, made it feasible to, to prep for the case in the short period of time that I had. Um, Again, I like I hesitate to speak in generalities, but I will say that um, at Swords to Plowshares, I mean, we're in-house attorneys. We this is our practice that you know we're representing veterans and VA benefits claims and discharge upgrades um, all the time. Uh, but for pro bono attorneys who are taking one of these cases, um, you have your other workload as well. And so when what what my average is for how I process the case is probably much different, both because it's my full time job, but also because I might be representing a veteran in a VA character discharge determination first before I even start working on their discharge upgrade because we like to use the 
hopefully positive result of the VA character of discharge determination and getting that person's service connected as a way um, or as evidence in support of the discharge upgrade. And also because they can potentially be receiving VA benefits and healthcare um, while they're waiting for the discharge upgrade if we're able to be successful in that VA process. Um, so that changes things a little bit. But for the pro bono attorneys that we work with, and we work with many um, who do discharge upgrades for uh, veterans that source to plowshares can't represent in-house, um, we recommend or we give as a guideline that from the time that they receive the case from us um, to the time that they have a brief ready for us to review and then submit is about six months. Um, and that's taking into account that when we assign a case to a pro bono attorney, we have already received the records. So it's not, you're not waiting months and months during that six month period um, to try to get the veterans records. Um, so maybe that can give a little bit of a sense of, of you know, what we kind of expect the timeline to be from, from getting the records, reviewing them, talking with the client and prepping um, the application to be ready for submission. Um, that can change if the client's in and out of contact, of course. Um, and then from there, I think our, our general experience is that it is taking at least um, a year to sometimes a year and a half or two years from filing of the application to actually receiving a decision. Yeah, yeah I think that's Good guidance, Olivia. Um, and uh, being mindful of time, I want to um, use that as a little bit of a transition to answer the question about if people are interested in getting involved, um, if you were not already, um, how to do so. So um, if you are uh, in the Boston area um, or New England and you're interested in getting involved in our Veterans Justice Pro Bono Partnership, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to talk more about sort of what structures and mentorship and training we have um, uh, to help you be as successful as possible, knowing that discharge of grade law is probably not something that your firm regularly practices. So it's helpful to have um, additional resources and support to do this um, in the best and most client-centered way. So we've tried to create a really robust structure around that. Um, so yeah, happy to talk to people. We also have many prior trainings if people are interested in learning more, especially this process of thinking about evidence development and working with experts and getting letters of support and drafting a brief, um, that's covered extensively in some of our prior trainings, all of which are, thanks to the BPA, accessible um, online uh, and for free. So feel free to reach out if you would like to get access to those. Thank you so much, Alex, Olivia, Amelia, who had to jump off early, or rather, who had to jump off on time, and then we ran over. Um, I'm so, so grateful for your incredible advocacy and for all the work that you've done and for your willingness to share your experiences here. Good luck to your clients in waiting for their decisions. Um, and thank you again to everyone for joining us and to the BBA for hosting another year's program. Take care, everyone. Have a nice afternoon.